we now come to a time where we're going to uh, hear God's word preached. And our text this evening will be Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be reading from verse 1 to 8. I think I can read. That's the portion that we'll be considering, but we can read the whole chapter. So you could turn there. Isaiah chapter 6, we would read the whole chapter. This is God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then I say, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of these people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes the people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let us pray. Again, Father, we come to you and ask that, Lord, sanctify us with your word, your word, which is truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We 
have read this vision here that the prophet saw. And I would like us to begin, first of all, to look at the condition that surrounded the nation of Judah at this time when the prophet saw the vision of the Lord. He begins in verse 1 by telling us the occasion that he received this vision from God. In verse 1, we are told that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. It was this time that this vision came to the prophet. We have the narrative of the reign of King Uzziah recorded for us in Second Chronicles, and from this we can try to begin to discern the conditions with which the nation of Judah was in. And this would help us set the stage for the vision that he received. So in Second Chronicles chapter 26, we are not going to read that chapter, but at your own time you could consider reading it. We see that at this time, the kingdom was experiencing great prosperity, politically and economically. Uzziah had managed to subdue all the immediate enemies of Judah. He had managed to increase, to increase Israel's military strength and also had brought abundant agricultural prosperity. And we are specifically told the reasons for all this. Why is it that the king and his kingdom prospered in this way? In 2 Chronicles 26 verse 5, we are told that Uzziah set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So we see here, it's because the king conducted himself in the fear of the Lord. And insofar as he acted in the fear of the Lord, he walked in the fear of the Lord, the Lord prospered him. That was the reason for the success that the nation was having at this time. But sadly, at the latter part of his reign, something tragic happened. He became proud and totally forgot who had granted him success. Instead of continuing in the fear of the Lord, he idolized his success and lost sight of God, which led him to act in disobedience. We are told there, if you read the chapter, that he entered into the temple and offered incense, which was a duty that was specifically designated to the priests. And so the Lord was displeased with him. And 
in verse 16 of the same chapter, 2 Chronicles, verse 26. We are told that, but when he was strong, that is Isaiah, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense of the, on, the altar of the, on the altar of incense. And so as a result of this defiance of the king, God struck him with leprosy and he died in this condition. When we are told that the year that King Uzziah died, these are the events that lead up to his very own death. Now this is one of the spiritual complacency that I would want to bring to our attention this evening. It is one where we idolize the success that God has granted us, whether spiritual or material. Brothers and sisters, when is it that we are likely to fall into sin? When is it that we are tempted the most to be careless concerning our spiritual life? Is it when we are on our spiritual mountaintops or when we are at our spiritual valleys? My experience, and I believe the experience of most will be, it is when we are on our spiritual mountaintops. It is when we are progressing so well in our Christian walk that we are most vulnerable to become complacent. And the Apostle Paul clearly warns us of this tendency in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse, 10 and verse 12, where we read that, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You might be experiencing your best moments as a Christian. Praise God for this. You might be reading your Bible consistently, coming to church consistently, praying consistently, fasting regularly, family devotions are consistent and so on. Praise God if this is what is happening. But you must always refresh your mind and your heart of the reason why you have come to advance so much spiritually. If you lose sight of the real reason, your fall is as inevitable as that of King Uzziah. This can happen at an individual level and at a corporate level. As a church, we bless the Lord. We have been experiencing a considerable amount of growth with new members joining in and almost, and this almost every month, we see renewed interest in our members wanting to pray and we praise God for this. We praise God because in this pulpit or on this pulpit, God's word has constantly been faithfully proclaimed every Sunday. And all this is to say that the Lord has prospered us and is prospering us 
But such times are times when we need to be on the guard. We should not think that our own hand has brought us success. We should not think that it is because we as, the, uh, we, as reformed people, know how to press the right buttons. And voila, spiritual success. No. We should always keep in mind what really helps us to grow and to mature in our spiritual faith and never lose sight of that as the king did and became complacent. Secondly, there is a different kind of spiritual complacency that is exemplified by the nation at large. This we see especially in the charge that the prophet lays before the nation in Isaiah chapter 1. And actually, if we read from Isaiah chapter 1 to chapter 5, there are various indictments that... God brings to the nation of Israel. But we can focus ourselves specifically to this one kind of wickedness and sinfulness that we see uh, in chapter 1 of Isaiah. So in chapter 1, verses 10 to 14, we read, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord. Sorry, you, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord. I have heard enough of your burnt off offerings of rams and the fat of the well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. From this portion, it is clear that the nation was guilty of the sin of hypocrisy. Blunted and open hypocrisy was being practiced by many in Judah. This kind of hypocrisy that these people were engaged in would be similar in our present days to coming to church, praying, reading your Bible, and doing all these outward religious practices that we are called to while living in sin. And this is probably tied to the prosperity that God had granted the nation. 
the nation thought that surely God was with them and all that they needed to do was perform outward religious activity and God's favor would be upon them. But, we, but as we see, God promises to pour his wrath upon them if they would not turn from this kind of wickedness. God will not wink at hypocrisy. My friend, if you call upon the name of the Lord and at the same time live a life of sin, you are only doomed to face his wrath. It doesn't matter how many hours you pray or read your Bible. It doesn't matter if you come to church the whole day. It doesn't matter if you tithe consistently. As long as you live in constant sin, what will be your end is judgment and condemnation. This then is the second kind of spiritual complacency that we see in the nation of Judah. What then shall we uh, do to be helped out of this kind of complacency if you are the one in this kind of spiritual complacency or be guarded and shielded and be kept away from it? And what happens here in Isaiah chapter 6 is exactly what we need. We need to see God for who he is. That is the remedy that is offered here. There is a reason why this vision that pertains to the prophet, prophet's call is not placed in chapter 1 but here in chapter 6 of Isaiah, it definitely has a bearing upon the previous chapters, and I think it serves to help the nation to awaken from their spiritual slumber. Not only the king seems to have forgotten the fear of God as the ground for spiritual and material success, but the nation at large. They need to be brought face to face with God. Yet, as we have read the chapter in the call of Isaiah, we see that many will not heed to this vision of Yahweh and therefore be doomed to destruction. But yet, a few will be impacted by this vision of God. Isaiah himself being one of them and awaken themselves from their spiritual carelessness and serve the Lord faithfully. So then, brothers and sisters, we turn to the vision itself and begin to ask ourselves, who is God? Who is this God that Isaiah sees? And in verse 1, 
we are told that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So first of all, we see the sovereign God who is clothed in infinite royalty. God is here uh, portrayed as having the highest of authority, rule, and dominion. His rule also is described as one which is of infinite royalty with a train of his robe filling the temple. You know, our minds tremble or uh, fail to grasp to the fullest extent what exactly did it look like for the whole train of God's robe filling the entirety of the temple. This is infinite royalty being displayed for us here. He is the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no throne that is above his throne. It is high and lifted up. He reigns over all. It is not Uzziah or the one who is to take his place, who is sovereign over the nation. It is the Lord who Isaiah saw. It is him that the nation have to come to terms with. It is not the empires of the world that possess absolute authority, but the Lord. This is the one with whom the nation must reckon with. This is the one whom they have rebelled against in their wickedness. They have spanned his rule and governance and sought to act as they please. The nation needs to come to this understanding of God and humble themselves before him, lest he subdues them in judgment for their continual rebellion. And their spiritual lapses surely had to do with the fact that they had forgotten that God is the Lord, whose Lordship stands over and above everything else. They probably thought that the Lord's sovereignty did not extend to their day-to-day conduct. As long as they had done their religious duty, that's all that God concerned, was concerned with. But Christ's lordship is not limited to a few areas of our lives, brothers and sisters. It extends to every aspect of our lives. It has to do with the way we raise our kids, the way we educate them, the way we do government, the way we do business, the way we conduct ourselves in our offices. Indeed, as Abraham Kuyper famously put it, there is not a square inch 
in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And it is this God that the nation had forgotten and therefore acted hypocritically. And some became proud because of the successes that they had achieved. This is the God we worship. We must come to terms with him as he has revealed himself. This is the Lord whom we all must one day stand before and give an account for everything that we have done. We must come to terms with him. And you see, if we fail to acknowledge him for who he is, then what happened to the king and to the nation would befall us only for our destruction. Then secondly, as we continue on with the vision, verse 2 and 3, we are told that above him, the seraphim, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So secondly, we see in this vision the thrice holy God. The thrice holy God. The prophet sees the seraphim. And their demeanor before God is one that is instructive. Here are angelic beings that are perfect without sin. Here are beings who when men saw at times were tempted to worship. Men trembled before the presence of angels. But these very beings, when they come face to face with God, they dare not show their face before him. They cover their face. And it's as if they are also ashamed to display their feet before the thrice holy God. And they cover their feet. The immensity of God's holiness here is undescribable. These glorious, perfect beings are here shrinking from exposing themselves to God who is before them. And they, as they are in this kind of condition, they can't help it, but proclaim with all their might who this God is. They call one to another and say, Holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is not only holy, 
and neither is he holy, holy. But God is holy, holy, holy. He is thrice holy. And this was a, a literal, literally divine, uh, literally device, or a way in which to uh, magnify. The way we would do in our day is we would write something in cups or we would uh, bolden the font. But those days they didn't have computers in which they could magnify in words particular aspects. So the way they did it in Hebrew was to repeat. Brothers and sisters, there is no other attribute of God that is magnified in this way. What would this mean then? It means that of essence, God is holy. That is what defines God. That is who he is in essence. He is holy. What then does it mean for God to call himself holy? How shall we understand this attribute that he magnifies to the highest degree? This surely is one that we need to come to a better understanding. And we can consider a few texts that will help us in a way to understand the holiness of God. In 1 Samuel 2.2, we read that there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Another text to consider before we come to make our comments and help be helped to understand the holiness of God is Isaiah 40:25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Then we have Hosea 11 verse 9. I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. For these verses tell us is what it means for God to be holy is that he cannot be compared to man or anything else. He is simply on a class of himself. We cannot begin with something else, then work our way up to who God is. If we do this, we will only end up with an idol. 
In the end, God is uniquely God. His holiness is his utterly unique divine essence and determines all that he is and does and is determined by no one. No words can uh, wrap themselves around this idea fully. Language itself trembles just as the foundation of the threshold in trying to capture who the thrice holy God is. Yes, we can know God. Yes, he has revealed to us in ways that we can know him. But yet, he transcends all knowledge. He is holy. Again, this is the God that the nation had forgotten. If they had kept in mind his holiness, they would have been kept from their spiritual complacency. And brothers and sisters, we too need to be reminded that this is the God that we worship. He is not like you. He cannot be compared to anything. And we can only come to him and conduct ourselves in a manner that he describes. What then is the attitude of the non-complacent Christian? After we have come to see who God is in his sovereignty and in his infinite royalty and see him in his holiness, how then, if we are not to be complacent, should we respond to the vision of God? And Isaiah himself is the perfect portrait of how we ought to conduct ourselves in view of who God is. Once the prophet sees God in his infinite royalty and sovereignty and sees God in his holiness, he can't help it but condemn himself. Woe is me, is the response of the prophet in verse 5. In chapter 5, he had pronounced a couple number of woes to the nation. If you look uh, there from verse 18 all the way to verse 22, the woe or the cry of destruction is di directed towards the nation. But when the prophet himself comes to see God for who he truly is, he must also condemn himself. He sees himself for what he truly is in and of himself, a sinner worthy of God's righteous wrath. 
We all have come to this point if we all have to come to this point if we are to be rid of our complacency and be shielded, shielded from being complacent about our spiritual life. We must confess that apart from Christ, what is due to us is only condemnation. Only condemnation. We must come to view ourselves in this light. Many other times in evangelism, when you ask someone if they think that they will go to heaven, they respond with a hearty yes. But when you ask the reason why they think so, they tell you it's because they are not as bad. It is because they have not come face to face with God. Maybe they have come face to face with their own friend who is misbehaving, who conducts himself in very uh, pronounced sinful ways. And when they look at this other individual, they say, surely I'm not that bad. Surely God will receive me and condemn the other. But we see even a righteous, quote-unquote, man, like the prophet, the very messenger of God, when he is confronted with who God is, he also must confess that he is condemned. Have you considered this holy God? This is the God with whom you would make an account one day. If sinless, perfect beings cannot dare to look at him, what about you? If you go to him in and of yourself, surely would you be able to escape? And so, this is the first thing that we must realize, that God is holy and we are not. And because of this, his holiness demands that we perish. Secondly, we see that what the prophet does, he embraces God's way of pardoning his sins. After he has proclaimed that he is a man of unclean lips, that he is sinful, just as the whole nation is sinful, the complacency is not only uh, experienced in the nation, but also with himself, We see in verse 6 that the the, then one of the seraphim flew to him and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Brothers and sisters, once we have come to see ourselves as deserving God's wrath, 
the only remedy for us is our sins being atoned for. We will never appreciate the necessity of our sins being atoned for by Christ unless we see the magnitude of our sins. It is against this infinitely holy God that you have committed all your wicked acts. Your sins are not small sins. If there was a small God, then there would be small sins. But since it is an infinite and holy God that you have committed sin against, your sin knows no end. It is infinite. Sin is infinitely evil since it is committed against an infinite holy God. That is why hell is forever. That is the only just punishment that a sinner can receive for their sins. And so you cannot say that I will try and do better and I know God will look upon me with favor. That will not do it. It won't. The only way you can pay for your sins is either by trusting in another or you paying for them eternally in hell. Those are the only options. It's either we trust in the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross or we perish forever for our sins. And so God uh, extends his grace and his mercy to the prophet in this symbolic way. The altar was the place where the sacrifice was offered for sins and where the atonement was typified in the Old Testament through the sacrifices that were offered. But we know that Christ has come and perfectly fulfilled all that these sacrifices pointed to. And Isaiah himself prophesied of the coming of the Lord to take away our sins in Isaiah 53, where we are told, if we read from verse 3, speaking of the Messiah who is to come, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was what atoned. This is who atoned for the sins of the prophet. That in the fullness of time, it's 
it's just glorious that in John, I think it's chapter 12, John tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus. This, the one that Isaiah was seeing here was the Lord himself, the Lord Christ. It is funny that this is the one who atoned. The one whom Isaiah saw was the very one who atoned for his sins. It's just beyond words. We cannot fully express God's love and grace and mercy towards us that he would send his only begotten son to be like one of us in every respect to live a life without sin and at the end of it all die the death of sinners, the death that we deserved so that through that perfect sacrifice we might be granted forgiveness of sins. This is the only way that any one of us can, can be made right with God. Then finally, God's grace is the ground for his faithfulness. Uh, sorry, I don't know how I put it there. But God's grace is the ground for our faithfulness. You see, after the sins of the prophet have been atoned for, then he hears uh, a voice. He hears the voice of the Lord saying that whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to these people. Before the sins of the prophet were atoned for, the only thing that he could try out is woe. There is no way he could have ventured to say, God, here I am. Use me as you please. Only when the Lord has dealt with our sinfulness, are we free to serve him? If we would have been left in our sinful condition, we would have been completely paralyzed from serving the Lord. And this everywhere is the logic of the, of the Bible. Before the Lord gives the nation of Israel the commandments, and even in the chapter that we have read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God has been gracious to them. It is out of his graciousness that he is commanding them to walk faithfully. My brother and sister, if you are yet to experience the saving mercies of God, you cannot walk faithfully. You can pretend. You can only act hypocritically and pretend that all is well. But only those who have truly tasted and known that the Lord is good, only this can be able 
to willingly tell the highest holy God, the one who is sovereign of all, here I am, Lord, send me. If you look at Romans, the, the apostle labors to lay out the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have been looking and going through the book, but it is only at chapter, at chapter 12 that he calls them now to a life of obedience. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We have to constantly keep in our minds and in our hearts the fact that it is the grace of God that has granted us to say no to every form of ungodliness. If you are living faithfully as a Christian, constantly remind yourself of who God is. For you will see that it's only by grace that you can be able to do anything that is worthwhile for God. Constantly remind yourself of this God that Isaiah saw. Oh, may he be pleased to even reveal himself to one who has yet to come to know him. So that all of us will be freed from the kind of complacency that we saw with the king and the nation at large. 